0: You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: How many threads need to align, connect, to take us on a journey to freedom, out of the darkness into the light? I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore... The nimble craft of storytelling on this episode. The author of On Freedom Road, David Goodrich, stops by. After the break, she's back. Rory Vesey with a new edition of Rory's Island. The traces of the Underground Railroad hide in plain sight. A great church in Philadelphia. A humble old house backing up to the New Jersey Turnpike. An industrial outbuilding in Ohio. David Goodrich has rode his bicycle 3,000 miles east of the Mississippi, God bless him for that, to travel the routes of the Underground Road and delve into the history and stories in the places where they happened. And David, welcome to the program. What an honor.
2: Thanks, thanks so much, Larry. It's a, it's a pleasure.
1: And I want to tell the audience, I want to pat you on the back because we had to reschedule you and you were so generous in coming back and giving us some time.
2: Not
1: a problem at all. So let me give everybody the subtitle of the book. The book is called On Freedom Road, Bicycle Explorations and Reckonings on the Underground Railroad. Now, David, I'm going to tell a story that's mostly true. I'm going to go back to my days in elementary school, the East Broadway Elementary School in the Levittown School District. I mentioned Levittown because it's a connection to your story. When all the men and women came home from World War II and needed a place to live, Levittown was built. There was a codicil in there. You cannot sell your home to black families. And that, in a sense, is almost all the way thread through in terms of the history of this country. So here's, here's the true story. I was given an assignment. I don't know it was a fifth grade or sixth grade. We were given assignments in terms of places and times in history. And one of my classmates got the assignment out writing about the Underground Railroad. He comes back the next day in class. And his report is on the subway. And I am told his parents helped him. So if he's still around right now, maybe we'll give him the real story about the Underground Railroad. So let's talk about, for anybody that's not familiar with that, what was the Underground Railroad?
2: Well, Larry, it basically was um, an informal network to uh, allow people, uh, allow enslaved people, freedom seekers, if you will, uh, to find a way to uh, to freedom. Typically that would be to the north um, along a kind of a spider web of safe houses where uh, people would go from, from one to another trying to avoid um, the gangs of slave hunters which were ubiquitous especially after uh, the passage of the fugitive slave law in 1850. You could basically um, hunt down Formerly enslaved anywhere in the country.
1: So, I'm going to share one more personal story, and this is going to be exposing how old I am. In 1976, I took a year off from my teaching job, and I rode my bicycle from New York to California. And I mention that because it pales into comparison between all the adventures you've had on your bicycle. So, what did you describe to f- cover the routes? of of the underground road you could have uh, driven it you could have done it much different ways why do it on a bicycle
2: well one of the ways is that you can you can get to see um some things on a bike to feel some things on a bike that you don't get in a in a car or other other means of transportation um i mean we um there i had uh, two companions with me for a about two thirds of the rides. And we would be out um out in the rain in the weather, albeit we had uh the benefit of Gore Tex, um, nice shiny gears and a place to stay every night. Whereas uh, people on the run would typically be traveling at night and um and would have people searching for them typically. So we can get I could get a little feel of, of what some of the people on the Underground Railroad went through. Um, maybe just just a touch closer than than, uh, driving the routes by car.
1: So what I try to do, hopefully it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I believe there are two stories. There's the stories inside the covers of the book, and there's a much greater story in my mind about outside the covers of the book, talking about you, your life, and your upbringing. I'm going to take you back, I believe, to England and you have a relative on your family tree named John Goodrich, and he has an interesting connection to the story ultimately.
2: Yeah, uh, very much so. We were uh, visiting uh, England, the, the town of Bristol, which is where a uh, uh, good part of my family come from. There are a number of Goodrichs. There is there is a Goodrich Castle in England on the border border with Wales, which is kind of a fixer-upper. Um But also, when I visited a museum in Bristol, the Museum of the Commonwealth, there was the uh, story there, an exhibit in John Goodrich. And John Goodrich was a sea captain on the Middle Passage. Um, He was... uh, uh, Basically, in, in one of his voyages, He picked up 265 people from West Africa and uh, delivered 141 souls to Jamaica, which gives you an idea that 115 people were lost on this one voyage. So it was an incredibly brutal undertaking. And uh, it was kind of a a take-a-step-back moment for me in reading the reading the exhibit that that my namesake was so much involved in the in the whole uh institution of slavery
1: now i'm going to mention two uh books and two authors one was jack kerouac wrote the book called on the road the other was cormac mccarthy wrote the road and in sense i'm going to put your book in there and i'll tell you why i believe all three of you are searching for their version and visions of America. Would you agree or disagree with that?
2: Oh yes, yes, very much so. I mean, I, I, uh, I've kind of um, seen some of Kerouac's hangouts out in the uh, in in Greenwich Village, uh, but yes, yes, I I could certainly agree with that.
1: Now I'm going I'm to quote somebody else, Henry Louis Gates. This is what he said. I'm paraphrasing. He says, Underground Railroad never was large as we often imagine, but real. What do you think he meant by that?
2: Well, I think um, there is can be almost a romanticization of the Underground Railroad, that it was um, this way where uh, people were bringing bringing people out of slavery. And it was a real thing. Gates estimates something like 20,000 uh, people were freed, which is, um, which is a large number uh, via, via the Underground Railroad. But you compare it to on the order of um, a million people who were transported from the Upper South, including my state, Maryland, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, to the Lower South during the period of 1810s really to eighteen sixty. There was this tremendous traffic of, uh, of enslaved people, basically coffle a word that's almost not in the uh, in the vocabulary more, anymore of uh, chained people marching to the deep south. So, I think what Gates is trying to say is, it's you know, it was a thing, um, but. It pales in comparison with the overall enterprise in slavery before the Civil War.
1: You mentioned coffles. It's the first time I ever read that word. And immediately put the book down, I thought about that. You know what it reminded me of in the South? The chain gangs, the prison chain gangs, all chained up, doing their labors, mostly, I would assume, African Americans. So there's, for me, it was a connection there in terms of the past showing its face up again in the history of this country in more modern times.
2: I know when I first typed that word into uh, the into manuscript on Microsoft Word, it flagged it It said, well, what, what's this word? It's, it's almost like an archaic word. But it was very much a thing. It was very much a thing right in my hometown of Rockland, um, where there were these uh, uh, gang gangs, if you will, of the enslaved. Some of them uh, were marched right by the Capitol, and it actually became – the point where it, it was uh, too inconvenient for the congressman to be sitting out on the steps watching um, gangs of chained people march by. So they, they, they routed them around so they, they would not be inside of the, of the Capitol anymore.
1: But- if, you, if you're just joining us, on Larry Davidson, being rude by interrupting him, but I'll tell you who the guest is, David Goodrich. The book is called On Freedom Road, Bicycle Explorations and Reckonings on the Underground Railroad. So the book is broken up into two different paths that you you took, tracing on the ground road. Let's talk about it. I believe you did this in the summer of 2019, Freedom Road East. Tell us about that ride and what you found and explored.
2: Well, um, that road was following uh, the route of Harriet Tubman, probably the most famous of the Underground Railroad conductors. Uh, with luck, her picture will be on the $20 bill at some point. Um, following Harriet Tubman's route from Cambridge, Maryland, all the way to uh, St. Catherine's, Ontario, um, was about uh, a little less than 1,000 miles on the bike. And starting in Cambridge, we started where uh, Harriet Tubman grew up. And um, she had many... Uh, adventures escapades along this road where you know she came very close to being being nabbed a number of times and i think one of the things that uh that helped her along was that she was a very small woman um prodigiously strong but small and um i think the the enslavers on the eastern shore of of maryland and delaware where she was bringing bringing her people out Basically, thought that this had to be the work of northern abolitionists, northern white abolitionists. Right. They never, uh, never quite could could understand that the prominent actor in all this was a a very tiny, very strong black.
1: So, in this in this country, other countries throughout the world, we have a history of storytelling and folklore. So, here's my combination, my take. Of Harriet Tubman in terms of folklore, a combination of Johnny Appleseed, Paul Bunyan, and Casey Jones. Because I, I think she did a lot of that planting seeds, prodigious strength for her size, and also the whole aspect of the railroad, Casey Jones.
2: Indeed. Yes. I mean, she, uh, in many ways, um, after she escaped, from slavery and was working in Philadelphia. It just bothered her that all of her family and friends were still enslaved down in in Maryland, and she thought I could I could um, help them. I could lead them out. I know the way, and he went down, um, rescued roughly seventy people, which is still just a staggering number, and. She kept going back and going back, and, and increasingly, uh, the heat was on. That a lot of her, uh, uh, a lot of her safe houses, the, the people, the her conductors were getting nabbed, and it became increasingly dangerous for her. Uh, she had to she had to back off for for a couple of years when the uh, when it when it got too intense. But there's that. And then engraving on a statue of Harriet Tubman in Wilmington, where one of the uh, prominent conductors there, Thomas Garrett, um, he's writing in a letter. He says, I write to inform thee, he was a Quaker, he right. says, I write to inform thee that Harriet Tubman is again in these parts.
1: One of the beauties of books, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, we can take away what we want. We sit down and read and then try to process everything. I hate the word process. Everything right now is a process, a process. It's going to make, I think it's going to become a word that should be arcane and let's get rid of it. But anyway, the process. And I'm thinking of Sophie's Choice. And I'll tell you why. And also I'm thinking of Roots by Alex Haley. In terms of Sophie's Choice, some of the parents had to make a choice, a very difficult choice, what child to leave behind and what child to take on the route of the Underground Railroad. And that, for me, is very visceral and very dramatic to have to make that statement. If we had multiple children, we had to pick one to live and one to die, that's a very difficult choice. Extrapolate that out to people who are trying to find freedom, and it becomes even more important than an individual choice you or I may have.
2: Well, there's, there was one case in in particular. I mean, this, this choice was made all the time because... Very often, you could not bring your entire family. And one woman in Delaware, Charity Still, uh, decided that she would take – she had four children, two boys, two girls, and she felt like the boys could take – could better take care of themselves than the girls could. And she escaped across the Delaware River, a little south of where George Washington did, with the two girls, and the two boys were immediately sold, sold south. Into the uh, uh, the cotton economy of the South, and um, that that family, the Still family, is still very much um, uh, alive and doing very well. The the uh, Veronica Still is in the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, and managed to talk with her uh, about it, and her. Um, her great-great-grandfather was one of those two boys who was sold south by, um, by, by her mother, and he managed to escape and ultimately bring his family to freedom.
1: When I read books of history, there are some names we're all going to recognize because they're obvious, and Harry Tubman is one of them. There's a part that I think about that I call, for lack of a better phrase, the dustbin of history, lost and found. How many people were lost in terms of history that you found that we don't know about that participate on this? The heroes and the villains. There are so many people like that that we will never ever know about unless we read books like you write.
2: Well, there there certainly were some folks that I would would say are uh, unsung heroes, if you will. Uh, John Parker uh, who was if he was in one of those slave couples that went. Um, he walked all the way from his home in, in Richmond in North in and Richmond to uh, Mobile, Alabama. He ended up buying his freedom, setting up a blacksmith shop on the shores of the Ohio River, uh, Ohio being a nominally free state. And um, in the evenings he would go across the Ohio River in skiffs to help um, other freedom seekers find the way across the Ohio River. And he had more narrow escapes than he was told about, but he never, he never had his photograph taken. He never had it. He was afraid that it would be unwanted.
1: I'm going to switch gears because we have X amount of time. But I want to go to, in the book, I believe it was Chapter 3, Freedom Maroon, the River, the Blues, and the Borderland. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I am a huge fan of the blues. And when I was younger, I used to go to the Gaslight in Greenwich Village. I saw Ola Guthrie there before I ever recorded Alice's Restaurant. And then I also went one night to see somebody had kind of disappeared for 30 years, Mississippi John Hurt. And that... I don't know how to describe that, but people can't see that, but I can see you react because Mississippi John Hurt is part of this story. And you were, you were with a friend who also was kind of an expert on the blues. So let's kind of explore that.
2: Sure. Uh, my friend, Rick Sullivan is a blues guitarist. And when I said, I'm, I'm, I'm riding through the Mississippi Delta, he said, Oh my, you know, you have to stop. And, uh, we'll try to find Mississippi John Hurt's place. Um, Mississippi John Hurt was um, a big star right up until the uh, the Depression in the 1920s and has this wonderful, intricate, finger-picking style. And he was basically um, lost and rediscovered um, in the 1960s as an older man. Um, he was brought to the Newport Jazz Festival Um, along with the same Newport Jazz Festival that had uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Bob Dylan. But um, Rick and I, we heard that there is this Mississippi John Hurt Museum, and uh, says, call this guy uh, Floyd, um, and he'll take you there. And we we went to this place where uh, Mississippi John Hurt lived called Avalon. One of his famous songs is Avalon Blues and we're just there's no town there anymore there are just some some ruined buildings and we're waiting for somebody something to happen and out of the out of the shimmering heat of the asphalt comes this this beat up old pickup truck paint peeling off the fenders and this um black man just kind of leans out the window he doesn't even stop he, he slows down a little bit and he just waves with his arm. It's like, okay, I guess we're supposed to follow him. And he leads leads us ripping up through the hills in the uh, um, in the delta, and he deposits us at the Mississippi John Hurt Museum, which is, is John Hurt's old shotgun shack, the uh, uh, the long uh, the long shacks that that you see in, in New Orleans from time to time.
1: There's so, yeah. much, there's so much rich, rich history in this book. So I'm going to go back to before he was president, Abraham Lincoln. When did he become first aware of the buying and selling of human beings in New Orleans? Because that's also in your book.
2: Yes. Um, he, um, as a 17-year-old, he and another uh, another friend of his took a flatboat down the Ohio River and the Mississippi River, carrying carrying salt pork to New Orleans. New Orleans was the big town there. They they had probably as many adventures as as Huckleberry Finn along the river. Um, but uh, Lincoln also uh, floats right by the uh, the high hills of Vicksburg, which would figure prominently in his presidency. But he ends up um, in New Orleans, ties up the flatboat, sells his cargo and then is wandering through the slave markets, seeing um, children being torn away from their mothers, just sort of seeing the full ugliness of the institution of slavery. And it marked him um, for the rest of his life and arguably marked the country.
1: I'm going to mention another name, John Brown. I'm going to tell you why. There was a terrific limited series on one of the premium channels i think it was on showtime called the good lord bird ethan hawke was in it it's terrific um what an amazing character john brown was tell us about him what do you know and how does he kind of factor into this book
2: well i um i was writing uh with with my friend jan to in oberlin ohio and we found the marker to lewis leary was one of the people that John Brown recruited to his raid on Harper's Ferry. Folks may remember that uh, John Brown had this raid. They took over the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry in 1859, and the response, it was basically to try and generate a slave rebellion, and the response in, in Virginia was overwhelming. Uh, Lewis Leary was killed the second day at Harper's Ferry. and. Um, his shawl made it back to his widow in Oberlin the um, his widow uh, many years later after she's remarried as a grandmother is raising a grandson and she wraps the baby in the shawl almost to to transfer the courage of of her husband to the new baby and that baby was Langston Hughes and Langston Hughes ended up um not only writing poetry about Harper's Ferry, um, he donated that shawl to the Ohio History Museum, and it's still there. Um, my wife and I went to went to see the shawl, and it's almost like um, there, there was a woman who opened the door with latex gloves on, right? And, and he unrolled the shawl for us, and it's like if there is. Uh, a piece of cloth that can have magic that
1: is that is the shop i remember spending some time, i've been in boston multiple times but i remember one time i was there and we found an old cemetery and i love old cemeteries because on the tombstones is the history of that area and by extrapolation this country so let's talk about where some of the most famous people in your book were buried and where they can be found so let's go back to harriet tubman where is she buried
2: she is buried in Auburn, New York, the same town that uh, she, she ultimately came to live in a house that, was, that she bought um, from William Seward, who was Lincoln's Secretary of State. Uh, but her tombstone is a very modest thing. I mean, we we drove by it probably about three times before we, we said, oh, wow, this is it. Um, it's It's almost uh, her personality that, that um, it's like she she let her actions speak for her.
1: And Frederick Douglass,
2: um, about sixty miles away, which is about a day's ride on a bicycle, Frederick Douglass is buried in um, in Rochester, New York, and his um, his tombstone is much more ornate. I mean, you can you can imagine. It's, to me, it's a shame that the phonograph wasn't invented in time to hear a Frederick Douglass address, because Frederick Douglass was a a huge personality, character, writer, uh, and his tombstone is like that. It is it is a big thing with blue stars, and um, it's it's uh, it's quite spectacular. Frederick Douglass himself wrote of Harriet Tubman that you you did your work. I'm paraphrasing, but it's, it's you did your work in the dark, and I did mine in the light.
1: Like the uh, opening of this program, out of the darkness into the light. So you kind of booked-ended that for us. Once again, I'm going to get personal for a minute, and there's nothing special about me. But in my last day of riding into California, I was so excited. I got up really early, and it was still dark out. And as I'm riding, going up this hill, the sun is coming up. And there's a uh, good little bird. There's a bird following me for a fair amount of a distance. And I will always remember that. That's in my memory banks. So you have a lot of great memories on the road. What stands out for you? Good day, bad days, or they all kind of blend together?
2: Oh, um, I think one thing about bicycle touring, and you may have experienced in this, in, in your writing, the Trans Am in 76, I can remember on days when I'm on tour, I can remember everything that happens. Um, years, years later, I can't remember what I did yesterday, but, um, you you talk about the Pacific on your ride across, um, I got to the Pacific in Oregon and it's like smelling the salt air was spectacular. At the same time, you get into some, some real nasty weather kinds of days. I remember going across the, the Ben Franklin bridge in Philadelphia, um, in a, in a, um, where you couldn't even see the tops of the piers right. and the whole bridge is shaking. And the, the, uh, the, the metal is slick under underneath the tires. It's like, okay, I need to get off of this thing soon.
1: All right. So this is how we end almost every segment. And you can do anything you want with this, but I'm really curious. What did I get wrong? And, or what did I miss in terms of our, our conversation?
2: I, I can't think of much. I mean, this, this idea that the Underground Railroad um, wasn't necessarily as big a thing in compared to, the, to this whole institution of slavery, but it, it was a place of um, some genuine American heroes. And one of the things that was the most fun about this bike ride is pursuing those heroes.
1: Once again, the book is called On Freedom Road, Bicycle Explorations and Reckonings on the the Underground Road. The author is David Goodrich. I want to thank you once again. It took us a fair amount of time to get you here, but it was well worth it. And good luck with the newest grandchild, by the way.
2: Thank you so much, Larry. I enjoyed it very much.
1: I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. After the break, she's back with another edition of Rory's Island. Rory Vesey joins us shortly.
0: The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
1: Hi, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Joining us right now, we're always thrilled to have her. She's got a very busy schedule. Joining us with the latest edition of Rory's Island is Rory Vesey. Rory, hi.
3: Hi, how are you, Larry? I'm
1: good. How you doing? I like where you are. Are you in
3: the barn now? I'm not in my barn. I'm at my neighbor's barn because I am horse sitting for his horses.
1: All right. So like I told the previous guests, we don't mind any noises in the background. So we hear the horses. That's fine. It only add to the experience of listening to you. So right now, coming up, your newest edition of Rory's Island. Take it away, Rory.
3: Okay. On February 17th, the Boston Marathon's official race dog passed away on his own at home in his native state of Massachusetts. Spencer was 13 half years old. On February 24th, the New York Times assistant sports editor Taylor Minsberg wrote a full-length piece recounting the life of this golden retriever. Spencer began watching the race in 2015, holding a Boston strong flag in his mouth. He did so every year thereafter, even during COVID when no one ran. His four hours during a race run in terrible weather earned him a viral video. He stood stoically by, wagging his mouth, pelted with freezing rain, 20-mile-an-hour headwinds, while runners sacrificed precious seconds, precious minutes to pet him or have their photo taken with him in his Navy storm gear. This is what Spencer did every year for the runners. In between the marathons, he worked as a therapy dog, though he was not formally trained to be one. In 2022, in spite of being treated for cancer, he arrived at the race. And in July of that year, he had what was to be his last birthday. It was a party and 700 guests attended. Every life, big or small, two or four-legged, deserves the passing to be marked, the life acknowledged, Yes, I'm one of those people who gives a solemn burial to a bird who flies into a window or a bunny, like I did the other day, who went into the path of a big barn cat. Obviously, not all animal lives are marked. Not every human life is either. As Paul McCartney reminds us in his song, Eleanor Rigby, she was buried along with her name. That's a line that stands out. The big difference is that if you are human and you are of a certain age, you pretty much know if your death is going to warrant a New York Times writer. Indeed, this is what some people strive for, but not the animals. They live. Boy, do they live. They get up each and every day with whatever is left in their toolbox until the day that they don't. They don't know about the lovingly curated IG page, the Facebook posts, the likes, the comments. They don't know about the books, the movies, the poems, and the songs that have been inspired by their lives. What Spencer did know and what he recognized was the vibrations of kind attention. The need that the humans had to receive his feelings, his heart. Spencer will never know how rare it is to be written about in the New York Times, let alone the space that was allotted for him. Little does he know is a phrase that takes on a new meaning when applied to animals. Rest in peace, Spencer. You were a good boy. Knowing animals as I do, that was all the recognition he strove for or needed.
1: Well, I got to take a breath for a second, Rory. You and I are pet lovers. We've had many dog, dogs over the years. Um, boy, that was so well done. Thank you. You Thank you. If you don't mind, I just want to switch gears because we don't have a chance too often to talk to you because you are so busy. You are, you are a very proud mom. Tell us about what your son is doing these days, because he's had also an extraordinary career. I know you're very proud. Can you talk about him for a few minutes?
3: Yes, yes. He was a co-producer on Murder Mystery 2. as uh, That's Adam Sandler's latest movie with Jennifer Aniston. And he was also a co-producer on Murder Mystery 1. And he started out as a basketball player who always had a backup career as a stand-up comic. Okay. And one day he just said, you know, I'm going to try, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do open mic and put my material out there. And then, you know, through networking and connections and, and playing basketball, he ended up working for Adam Sandler's company, happy Madison. And he's gotten to work on movies as um, a writer for David Spade movies, Kevin James, um, and he's and the best thing about my son is, though, wherever I go, the people that he works with, they can't talk enough about how kind and thoughtful he is. And that makes me very proud because sometimes I'm I'm just surprised that somebody will make a point of coming over to tell me that. Yeah.
1: So I did you see the movie Uncut Gems? Yes. What did, I'm curious because I walked away saying this is a terrific movie. But the character that Adam played, I just felt, man, I don't know how I feel about this. And I don't want to give any spoilers in the ending. But that says, if you walk away, and to this day, I'm still thinking about that. that mm-hmm. That's a really powerful movie. How did you react?
3: Well, I, I reacted in a similar way. I what It is a movie you still think about. Right. And it's And it's amazing that adam sandler is always good at choosing those kinds of scripts that you will think about and he brings that so much so many levels to the character that i think that's why you go home and think about it because the character like all of us has so many different levels and things to think about
1: well i always value the time we have together No, no matter how long or short it is I want to thank you so much once again, Rory. Keep thinking of new things. We love having you on
3: the podcast, so I'm I'm challenging you you again. All right. Well, thank you for having me. I will. This was, I have to credit you, though, for giving me this idea to look up the Spencer story. So it was wonderful to read about him.
1: Yeah, well, I have run the Boston Marathon. I'm an owner of three golden retrievers. And when I read this story, one, it really got to me, but I too, I know also how you value your relationship with all your animals, but especially the dogs you have in your life. So you were the first person I thought of. I knew I couldn't do justice the way you did it. So once again, I want to thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Maybe next time I'll talk about the horses who work as as therapy horses.
1: I I would love that. So start start writing your script.
3: And when you're ready, let me know. We'll, We'll pop you right back in. I definitely will. Thanks for having me, Larry.
1: All right. This has been a wonderful episode. Once again, thank you, David Goodrich. The book is called On Freedom Road. And thank you, Rory Vesey, for another edition of Rory's Island. I'm Larry Davidson. Till next time, bye bye.
0: The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tail that affects us all.